Hi everyone, my name is Christian Rolone. I'm the co-president of Wharton FinTech and today's host. Today, I have Nick Shalik, partner at Ribbit Capital, one of the premier FinTech VC investors. Ribbit is invested in households names such as Robinhood, Coinbase, Credit Karma, and Affirm, as well as overseas in Revolut, Nubank, and Funding Circle. Nick, thanks so much for joining us today. Of course, thanks for having me. So how'd you get into VC? What first attracted you to VC, FinTech, and Ribbit? Sure, it's a bit of a random story, but I've always been interested in entrepreneurship and I started my career at Yale Investments, the group that manages the endowment at Yale. And a big part of what I did there was I worked on venture firms. I ended up leaving there to go to one of the venture managers, General Catalyst, that we had a relationship with and spent my time at General Catalyst building a company sort of as, a, as an entrepreneur incubating something internally there. Uh, that business is still around today, but I ended up um, coming to California to uh, go to grad school. And, and while I was at grad school, I, I was randomly introduced by a friend to um, my partner now, uh, Mickey Malka. And, you, you know, uh, I, I would have told you at the time that it was time for me to start a company, but I was very drawn to working with Mickey to the idea of, you know, uh, the, this trend in fintech that we were going to invest in and also being part of starting a new firm. So it was a way of doing what I had done historically and loved, which was investing, but also be part of building something. And how does your experience as a former entrepreneur help you during the investment process? Um, you know, I wasn't an entrepreneur for very long. I've been an investor for much longer. I, I, I spent a couple of years building a business and, and have, uh, have been involved in a number of other businesses, as, you know, in the early phases. Um, so I, I can't claim a, a long operating history, but I definitely can claim having some empathy for how hard it is in the beginning. And I think the, the most important thing is just remembering that uh, entrepreneurs are, uh, are people and the roller coaster ride of uh, starting a business in the beginning is a, um, it's, it's a mental challenge, an emotional challenge, it's a strategic challenge. So um, I, I think it, it, it helped me uh, just sit in the, uh, sit in the shoes of, of the folks that we you know, are trying to convince to work with us. And what first attracted you to fintech? Um, I've always been interested in fintech, uh, or, or at least since I, I started my professional career, just because um, I, I've I see the <clears throat> the enormous inefficiencies in the in the market. I mean, it's one space where there's an opportunity for technology to take cost out of the system, and uh, at the same time provide a, a lot of value to consumers. So, unlike in other big regulated industries that haven't been, you know sort of changed yet by technology like education or healthcare in financial services, there's a great opportunity to go directly to the customer, usually uh, with, a, with a proposition. And if you use technology well and you're able to get over some of the um, regulatory and capital barriers, some of the, hard, the things that make it hard to start a fintech company, um, many times there's a chance to actually make, just make something easier to use or cheaper or more transparent or otherwise better for consumers. So it's both good business and you know, I, I think you can have a lot of impact on, on the world too. So with that understanding, what's the investment process like here at Ribbit? What's the sweet spot in terms of stage, check size? Is Ribbit usually the lead investor? Things like that. Yeah, um, I guess we, we start from our first principle is we like to back um, great technologists who are trying to build new financial brands. And our belief is that over the next couple of, uh, of decades, we'll see a multi-trillion dollar shift from um, from firms that uh, don't know how to adapt to the increase in digitization of the world and of, of financial services to um, firms that are, are more native. And, and some of those companies that capture some of that equity value may be incumbents, but a lot of them will be startups. And so our goal at Rivet is to try to own equity in as many of the most important companies as possible. Um, 
our preference is to do that as a Series A investor. That's usually when we start investing in companies. Sometimes we invest earlier, sometimes we invest later. But um, usually we're, uh, again, we're, we're usually a lead, but we, we have tended to partner in almost every deal that we've done. We think it takes a village to build a fintech company. Um, so if we can be you know part of that equation, we're, we're happy to. Interesting. So it seems like it's a very tech fin approach, as, as some call it, to putting the technology ahead of the financial services as opposed to uh, having the, the financial services be the, the leading uh, wedge into the consumer's lives. Uh, I think that's right. Right, it's um, you need a balance. You need technology entrepreneurs who either have some background in financial services or can learn it um, very quickly. Because both, you know, on both sort of ends of the spectrum, there's a lot of technical knowledge, and uh, a great technologist or product manager from, say, a, a Google or a Facebook isn't necessarily going to be an entrepreneur who can build a fintech business. Um, but at the same time, that is what's most differentiated about these companies that are competing with incumbents. It's the ability to build great software to move quickly to recruit different kinds of talent. Um, and so if you don't have that as a, as a starting place, it can be really hard to, uh, to build differentiated companies. And you touched on this before uh, in terms of how financial services are a heavily regulated industry. How do you price that risk into a lot of the investments that you make that this isn't an e-commerce company, you can't just infinitely scale it, for example, that you're gonna run into some regulatory hurdles? We see regulation as a risk, but it's also a big part of the opportunity. If you're starting an e-commerce company, um, even if you're, you know, you're, you're really shrewd and have a great team, there are going to be dozens of people who are doing the same thing at the same time. Um, there have been a lot of entrepreneurs who have been attracted to fintech in the last six years that we've been r- running um, Ribbit. So there are more people in the space now. But in general, the bar for, um, for building a fintech company is really high in large part because um, it's very hard to be regulated. So if you, for instance, built a, a new insurance company as a carrier or even a, as an MGA, the, the regulatory regime to, to do that in the U.S. Is, can be forbidding. And that makes it difficult to, um, to get started, but you build these sort of great moats and barriers for the business as you go. So uh, regula- you know, the, the regulation, regulatory risk is something that um, uh, VCs often sort of use to say that they didn't want you know, to talk themselves out of investing in this category in the past. I think it's a real risk, but there are a hundred things that can kill a startup. And what we're trying to do is back entrepreneurs who are very shrewd about how they build defensibility or a sort of an advantage in um, in addressing the realities of regulation. Interesting. So using regulation as a moat to protect the, a lot of the businesses that you're invested in. Yeah, it's a, it's not that novel a thing to say these days. I think actually a lot of entrepreneurs the last kind of five to ten years has been uh, uh, eye opening for for them to realize that regulated industries often you, you have to have a different personality, a different kind of uh, patience and tenacity. But you know everything from ride sharing to fintech um, to to healthcare. There's uh, there's a lot of opportunity if 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 you're willing to um, slog it out. But it's a different type of entrepreneur, and it it, um, it it's a different type of uh, way that you need to sort of um, stage capital and, and build a business over time. Could you speak to the last uh, publicly announced investment that Rivet made, and you know walk us through why you made the investment, what attracted you to that space? Yeah, I, I can't remember what was last announced publicly. Um, actually, we, we often encourage our entrepreneurs to um, not announce an investment round or at least wait until they have some news to announce other than um, that they've, they've raised money, which we think is the, most, the least interesting news they can announce. So, um, so I, I, I can't, can't think exactly. I'll, I'll give you an example of a recent one is um, we invested in a, uh, an insurance company called Coalition, which um, depending on the way you look at it, is either an insurance company or a cyber security company. Really, they're a cyber insurer 
But they, the, what we love about it is the founder has started with a very deep background in cybersecurity and with a mission to figure out how to solve um, the, the cybersecurity challenge that they would say um, affects, especially SMEs, targets of um, opportunity, you know, people who um, should be able to protect their digital footprint, but struggle to because you know, you're in this rapidly evolving environment. And what the coalition team believes is by packaging cybersecurity uh, software and services with insurance, you're actually aligning yourself as a company fundamentally with your customers. So um, your customers buying insurance from you, you give them a lot of software and services for free or as part of that. Um, and then your aspiration is the same as theirs, which is never to have an event. I mean, it, most insurance is, um, you know, people are, are insured because if, if they do get in a car accident, so long as everybody's safe, they get their car fixed, they're happy. Um, most companies, yeah, they never want to claim in the cybersecurity space. So um, yeah, this, this company coalition is, uh, is run by a really special team, a, a lot of uh, former NSA and, and CIA folks and, and, and the founder and some of the other team members are from Cloudflare, which is a great cybersecurity company. So uh, something we're pretty excited about. Very cool. And sorry, in the context of e-commerce startups, people always point to Amazon as uh, someone described it as a grizzly bear. It'll either kill you or, or eat you. Uh, does the fintech space have its own Amazon? Would you consider it to be Square or someone like that or, or uh, an incumbent bank? I don't think fintech has its Amazon yet, and I suspect that it won't. Um, the truth is the financial services market is so big and so complex um, that I think there will always be a handful of players. If you look at um, Square and, and Stripe, for example, two companies that are very well positioned to do installment financing for consumers someday because they serve merchants and uh, at the point of sale, you know, this is something that their merchants could offer. Um, but Square and Stripe will never, as big as they might get, it, it's hard for us to imagine them uh, ever being the payment providers for all the merchants in the market. They, they serve certain parts of the market and they serve them really well. But for other types of merchants, um, you know, that, that need other solutions, um, there will be companies like Affirm. And then, you know, a firm will grow their business and will be the logical provider of some other financial service that overlaps. So I guess the, the world that we see emerging um, is more likely to have a number of very large companies. And there's definitely an advantage to scale in fintech. So um, I guess we imagine 10, $100 billion fintech companies in 10 years, more than $1 trillion fintech company, although, you know, certainly an ad financial or, or you know, so, some company could, could, could become that. Um, and, I, and I think the reason why we just don't see winner-take-all dynamics here, again, the markets are big and complex, and there tend not to be network effects uh, in the same way that you might see um, uh, in other spaces. And there are some data advantages, but multiple companies can build that in the domains that they're operating in. And the financial services space is, is just so large that it seems that you can have so many players going after the same pie and, and an ever-expanding pie without fighting over market share, it seems. I guess I would just say that the pie is... Uh, um, uh, it's not the same pie. And maybe people would have said this about commerce too, so it could turn out that we're wrong. But um, a, a, a favorite co a question that we ask entrepreneurs, and, and it seems like a very basic one, but who's your customer? Because if I told you I was gonna build a consumer lending startup, there are you know hundreds of different customer types that I could be going after, or different channels that I could be operating in, all of which may be big businesses in, in and of themselves just because of the size of the industry. So um, I, I think there will be, big segments that will allow um, you know, some of the fintech companies that emerge to get to some scale and then they'll expand. But even in their expansion, as they become big companies, there'll be room for many more. Just you know, think about the, the number of 100 plus or 
you know, 50 plus billion dollar banks or financial institutions in the world. It's, it's many more than the number of, uh, of commerce companies. And speaking about uh, those 50 plus large financial institutions, what's your view on how they're fighting back against uh, fintech startups? Or for example, JP Morgan just uh, announced their U Invest to uh, combat Robinhood and Fin to go after a lot of challenger banks. Marcus is expanding a lot, uh, the, the Goldman Sachs initiative. What's your view on uh, how much traction incumbents are getting across a lot of the markets that fintech firms are going after? Um, not much. It, it, it's, it's to be determined um, for, for sure, but I, I, it's not something that we worry about um, very regularly. I, I think some incumbents will be successful. Incumbents have enormous advantages in financial services. So in many ways, the question is, why should you know upstart technology teams ever be able to compete with people who have enormous balance sheets, you know, very well-known brands and this, you know, deep relationships with regulators and, you know, locking in channels. I think there are some good re- good reasons for that. You know, startups have the ability to move much faster. They don't have any legacy technology. They don't have legacy channels. They can recruit different kinds of talent. But the incumbents, um, they'll strike back and, and the ones that are the best will leverage their advantages to, to, to be important in the future. So I, I don't think we see a world where the top five banks all disappear. I think um, a couple of those will probably be much more valuable businesses in the future, and a couple of them will fall off. So uh, maybe a Chase or a Goldman Sachs does a very good job because they have the right leadership or they have the right you know, a, a commitment to technology uh, to compete, or, or maybe it's somebody else, but um, I, I don't think that every incumbent financial services company will. Got it. And uh, you're invested in a few challenger banks, one being Revolut, the other New Bank. What's your large uh, view on, on challenger banks? Um, I guess that there are lots of different entry points to what we see as the, the, main, the, the main thesis behind Ribbit was that over the last you know, 20 to 30 years, um, globally, uh, the banks have invested in building, uh, and, and you know, the financial institutions more broadly, not just banks, but have invested in building a global um, uh, payment systems and rails to be able to move money you know, anywhere, anytime, like basically have, have created an electronic um, financial services world or a digital financial service world, but they haven't changed very much at the edge of the network. Actually, they haven't built you know a very uh, different user experiences. They haven't evolved for a world that's um, that's mobile first, where consumers are looking for different brands. So a lot of what we've been investing in is um, people who want to build those applications on top of this financial grid. And you see some really interesting companies that are actually just like abstracting the complexity of this grid. That would be you know companies like Square sorry, companies like Stripe, um, you know, are, are building API uh, services for, for people to be able to tap into. Um, so challenger banks are an example of this, you know, um, uh, very strong software teams um, who are focused on mobile channel, who don't have any legacy um, infrastructure um, or channels who are saying, hey, you know, we're going to figure out some uh, new business model or, or new hook to acquire customers. You know what? So we've been in that phase the last five years mostly uh, of people sort of unbundling some service in the case of the challenger banks, actually sort of core checking in the case of robo-advisors or stock trading or, or lend, you know, um, consumer lending, sort of diff- different things. But all of them are, are trying to build customer bases and data assets that allow them to expand it. And now you see a lot of companies just the past, you know, call it year, who are starting to rebundle. That's definitely the future for challenger banks is to become more like traditional banks. Now to do it with new business models and and maybe with more open ecosystems uh, than, than has happened in the, pa- in, in the past. But when I look at a new bank or Revolut in our portfolio, 
what they're vying to be is a global banking brand and um, to be up there with a, a Chase or a City or a Itaú or, or Brisco or, or whoever it is. And in the U.S., you're invested in Cross River Bank, which seems to be creating the, the software layer for a lot of these uh, challenger banks. Could you talk a little bit more about that investment? Yeah, so Cross River fits in the category of um, similar to what I, I just described for Stripe. They're, um, they're abstracting away the complexity of interacting with the, you know, the, the traditional financial ecosystem, this grid, and making it easier for people to build innovative businesses on top of it. So we see Cross River as a very effective enabler, especially of consumer lenders, um, payment providers in, in the U.S., and they've been a great partner to a number of our other companies. And beside, beyond your U.S. investments, Rebits has been extremely active in, in Brazil uh, with Guia Bolso, Nubank, Conta Azul, and, and a handful of others. Why the focus on Brazil? How did, or how did Ribbit as a firm decide on, on Brazil and how do you source a lot of those opportunities there? Yeah, so uh, we never had a, we've never had a Brazil focus per se. From the very beginning of Ribbit, we uh, wanted to be a global firm um, because we think the opportunity in fintech is really global. Unlike in some other spaces where you're looking, say, for the global leader in music sharing, we think um, fintech businesses often sometimes, but not always travel cross border. And actually you can build very big companies in lending or insurance or wealth management within uh, uh, any major geography. Um, Brazil has always happened, you know, has always been an interesting market for us in part because um, we see it as a, a, a market that's ripe for change there. Uh, it's a kind of oligopolistic banking market, not very consumer friendly. A lot of the population is underserved. Rates are really high. They don't get passed through to customers and savings. Um, so, you know, a company like Nubank uh, that comes in with a free offering, something that's extremely easy for consumers to use and really puts the customer at the center of everything that they do and does it all on mobile has a real advantage, you know, has a real advantage in, in a market that historically has been, you know, not nearly as, as competitive. And so, yeah, I think with Nubank, with Stone that just went public, you're mm-hmm. starting to see how Brazil can be a great market for public fintech companies. But uh, we spent a lot of time investing in India and Europe and um, in China, you know, those markets are, are really big and you're seeing big fintech companies being built there too. You see Paytm in India, obviously Ant or WeChat or Lufax or others in China, Adyant went, you know, that went public this year in, in the Netherlands. So I, I think we'll, we'll, we'll see this as increasingly a global phenomenon. And what can U.S.-based fintech firms learn from a lot of their global peers? If anything, or, or are those markets just too dissimilar from U.S. based? No, 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 definitely not. Um, there's a lot of learning. So I, I actually think in the in, in sort of increasingly interconnected world that we live in where, um, you know, you have entrepreneurs in India are reading the same stuff that entrepreneurs in the U.S. are reading about how to manage different aspects of their business. So if you're running a, uh, you know, a, a wealth, a, an online wealth management or brokerage business in India, I think you have as much to learn from an entrepreneur down the street who's doing you know, an e-commerce business in Bangalore as you do from you know, an entrepreneur in, in uh, the Valley who's, who's building a similar wealth management business. So, and that, didn't, you know, that wasn't the way it, it used to be. Um, so I think we see in our portfolio a lot of global learnings and we, and we try to facilitate a lot of those connections uh, cross-border for people who are building similar companies. Um, there's also, of course, because the regulatory environment and the uh, technology ecosystem is different in each of these places, you see business models evolving at different speeds or in different ways. So there are things that are happening in China, for instance, that Ant Financial or, or Tencent with WeChat are doing um, that I think are precursors to what will evolve and happen in the US or Europe. And you see Ant and Tencent becoming very aggressive in their international ambitions too. And, and not just investing capital, but also bringing a lot of that knowledge and learning from the Chinese market to places like 
Brazil or, or Europe or even the U.S. And, and this year, uh, shifting gears a little bit, uh, we've seen many deals in fintech uh, with mega rounds, mega funds being raised in the fintech space. As one example, uh, Brex just raised $125 million. That's one of your portfolio companies. Do you think that this uh, larger check size is going to continue going forward? Or do you think 2018 was an anomaly in terms of check sizes and, and funding rounds? You know, it's hard not to say it's an anomaly just because the market feels so um, overheated. On the other hand, there's an enormous amount of uh, venture capital and, and private, you know, private equity has been raised and a lot of public markets investors who are investing in private companies at a later stage and companies are staying private for longer. So I think some of what you're seeing is just the um, change in the way that, that companies progress and raise money through their life cycle. But um, even earlier stage businesses, as, as you point out, raise a lot of money. Um, I think for some, this will be a negative because they won't have the discipline. For some, it'll be a positive because especially in fintech, you know, a, a big weapon that incumbents have against startups is startups, you know, often just don't have the staying power or the resources. And, and in fintech, capital can be a real advantage. It can enable you to build products that you actually wouldn't otherwise be able to build, not just in the way you'd say for most technology companies where, hey, I need to hire a bunch of engineers. But fundamentally, if you have a balance sheet, sometimes you can, you can create financial products that um, that you wouldn't have been able to if, if you were a smaller company. Um, so I, I, mostly what I think and what we talk with our, our portfolio about is that becoming a capital allocator is something um, that is increasingly an important skill for even early stage CEOs. That's something you usually only talk about public CEOs as capital allocators, early stage CEOs were innovators. Now you need to be an innovator, but you also need to be really smart and strategic about how you use these large amounts of money that you raise. Yeah, I heard someone describe it as uh, the two only things that uh, that an early stage CEOs focus on is uh, resourcing and prioritization. So I think this fits in pretty nicely with that. Uh, given that this is one of the longest uh, economic expansions in in, in recent uh, U.S. economic history, um, and the Fed's increasing rates, how does that impact your portfolio? How does it impact your you know reserve management? Do you think that uh, fintech companies specifically are going to be a little bit more challenged over the next you know five six years? Um, are you changing your uh, investing criteria? Are you changing how you're allocating reserves going forward? It's something we've thought about a ton since we started. It's a big part of why we started Ribbit was thinking that traditional venture firms are not very well suited to invest in, in fintech companies. Now, at the time, very few firms were investing. Now, actually, it's become much um, sort of more broadly practiced as, as some fintech companies have started to have success the past five years. But um, our view is the way that you stage capital and uh, into fintech companies, the timeline, you know, just can be longer because you have um, these regulatory factors or some of the cyclical factors you're talking about. Uh, it hasn't changed what we're looking for at its core, which is we're looking for great technologists who have smart ways to acquire customers and build customer relationships. Um, we've always been very aggressive about reserving, meaning we reserve a lot of capital for our company so that we can um, protect our, our ownership over time or be in a position to help them through um, through rocky patches. I think with rates rising, that can hurt some companies. Um, it'll help others. You know, lend, you know, lend, lenders or marketplace lenders may be more exposed. Some of the wealth management companies, uh, especially if they have a rate product or insurance companies may actually benefit from it. But um, more or less the macro factors, it's not what we're investing in and it's very, it's it's part of our consideration, but much more important is you know, how well positioned is this company to take advantage of this secular shift? And so I think lenders who have a very good moat or have a differentiated way of acquiring customers will find capital in any cycle. 